wanting to kind of prove everyone wrong. Like, you know, you can live a full, you know, independent, very strong life with disabilities or rare disorder or anything like that. Hi, this is Alana, and this is Wait, How Do You Spell That? A rare disease podcast produced by Patient Worthy. A couple things up front. We're coming to you from the apocalypse, or not the apocalypse, hopefully, um, but we are coming to you from a very serious situation, and we hope that everyone is doing okay or as best that you can, and that you and your loved ones are safe right now. Today I have a recording of a conversation that I had over Zoom. Um, If you've listened to previous episodes, you know that we have struggled in the past with audio and we are learning. And just when we thought that we had figured out how to do the microphones right, we ended up in a global situation where it has to be done over Zoom and we kind of sound like robots, but that's the dystopia that we're in, is we're robots now. Um, It's a podcast by robots. But we're robots who are excited to talk about urea cycle disorder, and here's our guest. My name is Lindsay Russell, and I am a patient experience advocate. I work with Connecting Families with Urea Cycle Disorder Mm -hmm. Foundation, and I'm also a urea cycle disorder patient, a rare disease patient. Can you tell us a little bit about urea cycle disorder? So urea cycle disorder is a disorder that It's carried on the X chromosome. It's a metabolic genetic disorder that restricts protein intake. It's similar to PKU, but um, it's very different and uh, like it's very complicated. Mm -hmm. So I like to keep it like that. (laughs) Yeah. Is it is it a smaller patient population than PKU? I know when I went to the homocystinuria conference, it's like with them it was like PKU is such a big or at least such a group with such a presence that it, um, because HCU is a smaller group, it, like, has PKU as this point of larger comparison? I do believe it is a smaller, uh, like, patient group or or patient number uh, than PKU, but I also believe that that has a lot to do with the fact that we, our disorder was not discovered until the year, like, 2000, so, um, you know, we don't, we don't know as much about it, and, Mm -hmm. um, have as much information as PKU has had for so many years, but um, they're a great ally and a great um, resource for some yeah. of our uh, recipes. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, how is uh, urea disorder diagnosed usually? It's diagnosed. There's adult onset. They also have like when when it's diagnosed at birth, uh, they do the newborn screening through the heel. There's adult onset, um, and then there's also you just you get it genetically, and that sometimes it. it it's very much patient to patient because there are some that are diagnosed in their uh, teenage years. Is there um, a big impact depending when you're diagnosed and what treatments are available? Sorry, that's two questions at once. Oh, no, it's okay. <laughs> yes. It is very much different uh, for each patient because mm-hmm. when they get diagnosed, there are different options for them um, and for their treatment. And uh, I'm sorry, the second question was? Was um, sort of about the treatments available. I know um, with a lot of metabolic disorders, it's like diet centered, but is there, I know with PKU, there's something that can help um, people tolerate slightly higher thresholds of protein. Right. We have a low protein diet, obviously. Mm -hmm. We take metabolic 
supplements to supplement the missing proteins or the missing mm -hmm. amino acids in our diet that are already broken down. And we also have ammonia scavengers that that's our medicine. So when the ammonia builds up from eating protein or not having enough protein, then the medicine, the ammonia scavengers go in and kind of help us break that down. There are also a lot of supplementations for the enzyme that is missing with the diagnosis. There's six diagnoses on the urea cycle. Like I said, it's very complicated and each different <laughs> cycle has a different enzyme. So we supplement that enzyme. Mm -hmm. um, how low is the low protein diet? I know for, um, for context, uh, we had a PKU episode of the podcast and that was me trying to eat 10 grams of protein in a day, which I like kind of didn't really do. <laughs> so what would be sort of like a typical range of how much protein um, someone can eat in their diet aside from sort of like supplements? So urea cycle disorder is very unique in that it is different for every single patient and the treatment is, is different for every single patient. The range could go anywhere between like I've seen as low as four and six grams of protein a day um, to, you know, 40 grams of protein a day, um, you know, so it, it all depends on how stable you are, you know, when you were diagnosed, the, the treat, your treatment, how your body tolerates it. It's very specific mm -hmm. to the mm -hmm. patient. I personally am allowed 32 grams of protein a day, which is a pretty tolerable amount, um, but it, it is a... I watched or listened to the episode and it was refreshing to hear somebody else, you know, struggle uh, with getting those low numbers. Yeah, it's hard. It's, you know, it was like, that was a day that I had sort of like marked off on my calendar. And I was like, this is the day where like the sole goal for what I'm doing today is around getting, um, a low protein number. And even then I like couldn't fully do it. It's definitely something that really made me realize how tough it is, especially, I mean, I know I talked about this on the episode, but like I'm vegetarian and I've been vegan for three years. And I was like, oh, I love eating low protein stuff. Like all I eat is like low protein stuff. And then realizing how much of what I ate actually had a lot of protein in it, even though it wasn't um, what people were expecting to when you're thinking about protein. Um, how old were you when you were diagnosed? I was diagnosed when I was 13. Mm -hmm. So it was uh, right during a, a transitional time in my life, for sure. Yeah. How did uh, that the diagnosis come to be? Uh, you know, um, I got really ill, and my mom took me to the ER, and I was lucky enough uh, to have a doctor who had just come back from, like, a symposium or, mm -hmm. or conference, yeah. and they, were, they learned about uh, this rare disorder that they were thinking you know, was around, but there was no test for, and uh, they had already tried everything else on me at the hospital when he came back. So he was like, well, let's just try this one test. Uh -huh. And it worked out. Wow. That's like very lucky. Like so many of them haven't gone to that symposium and you're just sort of left guessing for ages. How did that affect your life immediately afterwards, especially since you were 13, which is already an excruciatingly hard time to be a human? <laughs> Right. Um, so it definitely affected everything. No one really explained to me how things were going to change. Um, it's already such a transitional and hard time uh, in your life. Yeah. I, I think what I remember most is that I felt like I had no control. Mm -hmm. um, and that's like a, at one point in your life where like that's all you want is like one small yeah. amount of like independence or control of something. Um, and I, I remember also like feeling like my boundaries were stumbled on a lot. Uh, yeah. 
they, you know, like sometimes when you're just around like friends or family and, and you're the one that's different, they feel the need, uh, or I shouldn't say need, but they, they share your story without really asking yeah. if, if it's okay. Um, and they speak about you like you're not there and it's very demeaning. And again, when it's in that point in your life, when all you want is just for somebody to ask you what your boundaries are and give you that control, uh, it definitely, this disorder just kind of really made my world feel upside down. Yeah, I can, I can definitely see that. I've definitely been in conversations. Um, I think especially at 13 when you're sort of in the space between like, you're starting to have and want autonomy, but at the same time, adults who've known you for a long time are used to seeing you as like a kid. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I think it's boundaries with children are also important, but you become more aware of when they're crossed when you're getting into adolescence. And I've definitely been in conversations where I've been like, oh, oh, like, is the kid okay with us? And it's like, um, it's like, you know, the body is one of the personal things in the world. Um, uh -huh. And something that I think it's very important to sort of like have a choice to decide like who you want to tell and what you want to tell it to. Um, Sorry, that sentence just came out in a strangely constructed way. <laughs> um, but, um, were there a lot of follow-up tests or was the transition sort of pretty quick? Uh, no, the transition was pretty quick, actually. I, I don't remember there being, there were a lot of tests before. Mm -hmm. I don't remember there being a lot of tests after. after. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. Like once you have the diagnosis. But yeah, I think testing also, I mean, with testing, it's, for a clear medical purpose. But at the same time, there can sort of be the feeling that, um, I don't know, when like the hospital stays I've had that you're like, if you're at a time when you're sort of feeling like there isn't a lot of thought given to boundaries, a hospital and getting tests is kind of a hard situation to be in. Right, kind of takes away the modesty. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you're like allowed to have being in a hospital setting. I've definitely experienced that. Mm -hmm. um, I found a lot of strength, though, in kind of just, like, accepting my disorder and really just trying to embrace it wholly and fully and, you know, just do everything the best that I can. I think for me, I was, you know, for my story, I was kind of in denial for a long time and also feeling that, you know, treating, being treated that way when you're growing up. Uh, and then that kind of like forced the rebellion, the, yeah. the denial <laughs> where I was like, I don't have this on what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. And, um, that obviously did not work out very well for me. And I ended up getting sick and had to put the pieces back together. But for me, I've, I've gained a lot of strength. Uh, and I feel like a lot of strength back that was taken away from me, uh, in my childhood by like fully accepting it and just trying to live my best life with this disorder. That sounds so cliche, live my best life. <laughs> um, but, but for real, like I, I just try to like really do the best I can every day. Mm -hmm. How do you think um, you sort of started to get to this point? Um, like, was there any sort of moment that sort of felt like a turning point? Oh, for sure. I got fired. Oh, wow. <laughs> I got fired for, for having this disorder. Uh, oh, wow. Uh, it was not a great point in my life, but I just, I, afterward, I got mad. I was pissed off. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And that they helped trigger uh, my acceptance and me wanting to kind of prove everyone wrong. Like, you know, you can live a full, you know, independent, very strong life with, you know, disabilities or rare disorder or anything like that. And, mm-hmm. and um, I just kind of feel like, I don't know, he pushed me to it, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, how, like, when you say you got fired for it, that's like, a pretty horrible thing to hear. Is there, um, and you can, if you feel comfortable sharing, you don't have to talk more about it if it's something you'd rather leave out. Um, but is there a story that you'd be okay with sharing like that? I think uh, what I could say best about it is if I would have known what I know now, I wouldn't have let him uh, like fire me. Yeah. Because I'm illegal. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Um, I would have pushed him probably into more like making, uh, you know, I just, I probably would have followed up on it and it was, it was, uh, I got frustrated and I was young and naive and I just walked away. Whereas I I probably had a lot more leeway. That's Mm -hmm. really the only story that I can really share about it. It, uh, Mm -hmm. That, I think that's good to remind people of because when I hear that, it's like, that's the first thing that I think of is like, that sounds pretty illegal. Um, (laughs) But at the same time, like when you are young and like when you, when it's one of like an early job that you have, it's like, it is so easy to sort of feel like a boss is the boss and like you don't have say over it and to not know what you're able to ask for or not even ask for, but like expect in a work. Right. Yeah. I I didn't know any of that or um, until after and and it was, it wasn't really a great experience, but he was a loser, so whatever. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I also feel like getting fired, it's, like, such a transformational thing. It's, like, I feel like there's these big events where you have almost no choice but to be, like, okay, what do I do now? And, like, you can kind of use that time to end up, I guess, figuring out your values and, like, what you want to do. And it can be the start of something that's, like, really transformative and Cool. And like you, you said that it was a turning point for you with your journey with UCD. It was, it was, um, and, and you're right. It was very transformative. And I, I was able to like, kind of look back and really look at my priorities. And that's how I ended up working with uh, connecting families for urea cyclo disorder foundation. Mm-hmm. And I really love the work that I do with them. They, they raise a lot of awareness uh, and, and literally connect families with yeah. urea cycle. I have a blog that I write for them. Mm-hmm. Um, shout that out real quick. It's at www.ucdfamily.org. Mm-hmm. Cool. We'll put that in our, in our show notes too. Um, how did you get involved with them? Um, I just started reaching out. I wanted to know more people after I started really accepting, you know, that this is my disorder. This is who I am. I'm going to have a great life with this. Mm-hmm. Um, I started reaching out to other patients, uh, that had it or, you know, just like searching for it on Google. It popped up on my Facebook. It would like link me with people that had mentioned that they had it in their notes or whatever. I ended up getting linked with the connecting, uh, Connecting Families with Urea Cycle Disorder Foundation's co-founder, Robin, and we went to a conference together separately, and I saw on Facebook that she was down there, and I was like, what, you're here too? No way, and I like ran downstairs and met her, and it's, we've been hanging out ever since. That's, that's fun. It's, it, those conferences are so good, because I think, like, nothing really 
replaces sort of like getting to actually connect with someone who has the same um, disorder. Uh, like the, those, the conferences and like meeting people, I don't know if it was a UCD specific conference or if it was um, a different one, but sort of like getting to meet people in person, it's like there's such this instant family connection. Yeah, so it, it was not a UCD specific one. It was a Global Genes one, and it was a great fun. Um, I went completely separately, like, in search of friends. Like, mm -hmm. I want people to like me. Uh, I'm, I want people to accept me, you know, for, for who I am because I'm accepting myself now, and I just mm -hmm. i am finding all this strength in it. Um, and so I, just, I went down there, and it, it was a great experience. Uh, I will definitely say social media and those conferences are, like, the best thing for a rare disease patient. <laughs> um, also, I would say that I definitely agree with you that those like face-to-face -face inter our meetings make the social media and everything else so much better because I mean, that's why I like to work with CFUCDF um, because I, that's literally in their mission. They connect the families mm -hmm. like that have urea cycle disorder and we all, we get to see each other at like different, you know, places where they have meetups and camp. It's, it's so fun. Mm -hmm. uh, get everybody and you know the kids get to like know each other when they're young so like they don't have to feel I think the way some of us older adults did when like social media wasn't around we didn't know anybody you know mm -hmm. <laughs> it was like the phone book <laughs> yeah yeah no the phone book would be a very intimidating and like I still can't call people just on the phone <laughs> um uh like social media I feel like especially because it's sort of like those are two like face-to-face -face social media there's like such a a loose boundary between them um like it can go back and forth um but yeah that's that's really cool can you also tell me a little bit about the organization so i think um the best thing to say honestly is that it was uh started by michael and robin de leon and they co-founded it and their mission is to uh making the invisible visible wanted to make sure I got that right. Um, they work with urea cycle disorder patients. They have lots of good tools. Um, I think literally what they work to do is just connect families with urea cycle disorder. That's their mission is to bring people together, to have people feel not alone in their journey. And uh, it, it's a really great foundation to be involved with. I, I really love it. And it really brings me a lot of joy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I bet. I also, I heard you mention camps, and I think I saw a blog post of yours on the camps. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, the camps are so fun. So the camps happen once a year. This year, it got postponed. Oh, yeah. But uh, so we go to different um, camps around the United States. Um, they're usually at a YMCA camp. Um, they're completely yeah. free to the, the urea cycle disorder family that um, applies to come and they take care of travel they take care of food they take care of the accommodations at the camp and it's a camp literally for like all families any ages you know and, um, but it is like a, a fun family friendly kid funness do gooseball we had a uh, rock climbing we had paintball we've had archery um, candle making, face painting. It's so fun. Three days of it. Oh, Different wow. locations. 
That's that's really fun. I think camp is such a because I feel like camp is the ultimate bonding experience, um, especially when you're a kid and you're sort of like figuring out your space in the world and stuff. And I have um, I have friends with um, a different disorder who went to a similar camp um, where it was a lot of people who had the same um, diagnosis. And I think it actually was a really formative thing in becoming comfortable with themselves, uh, like as adolescents and um, not feeling like their diagnosis was something that they had to be um, embarrassed about or not feel good about, but it was just like a part of them. Oh yeah, definitely. These camps, it's so fun to see, you know, when the kids, you know, meet up and that there's not the questions of like, why are you taking that medicine? Or why do you have to eat differently or anything like that? These kids just get together. I mean, families as well, you know, it's nice for all of us to get together and breathe for once and mm-hmm. have everybody understand the same struggles that we're all going through. Um, I can tell you that I went as a single female with no kids mm-hmm. at 30 and sat on the sidelines and almost cried because uh-huh. I would have given anything in the whole world to have had a camp like that when I was little mm-hmm. and watching the kids have it just it, it was so amazing such a beautiful thing so these camps are priceless and I really uh, want you know thank Connecting Families with Urea Cycle Disorder Foundation for that. Yeah, no, they sound like a really fun thing. Um, with the um, low protein diet, now I'm kind of circling back to the other part. But is there are there any tips that you have for people who are maybe adjusting to a low protein diet? Um, I know that was something that um, when I was at the HCU conference that I mentioned earlier, everyone was comparing notes with their like you always order the French fries um, or like the jackfruit or something. Um, are there any sort of like tips you would recommend for anybody who's getting used to a low protein diet? Uh, Mine is, I think it's a tip on avoidance. Um, Mm -hmm. And my tip would be that a a lot of people think that when you go and you buy something that's vegan or it's like a meat alternative, that it's not going to be high in protein, Mm -hmm. which is not the case. Most of the meat alternatives are very high in protein. Yeah. The vegan cheese and things like that, those things are very high in protein. So I would say my tip would be to avoid uh, products that are marketed toward typical vegans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. Because there's, there's some that are low, but there's a lot where it's like, I know when I'm like coming at it as um, like, I'm not vegan anymore. But when I was vegan, you know, I'd be grocery shopping and I'd be like, no, I want to get the protein. Like, they would be adding protein in. That definitely makes sense. (laughs) Um, No, that, uh, do you have any sort of like favorite uh, low protein alternative foods or like food brands? I know that um, with, uh, I know there's like taste connections and I associate that more with HPU and PKU. But um, are there any sort of brands that you'd recommend? Not that I can think of off offhand. Um, my my favorite recommendation is a, a, a off Amazon, and they're called sweet potato noodles. And oh, you fun. can, they're actually not any like specific brand. I just type in sweet potato noodles. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, whatever's cheapest comes up. That's what I really like, and I really love them. They uh, are very good. They're like an Asian rice noodle, but they're not as thin, and they fill you up a little bit more. And I really enjoy them, and they're very low in protein. Yeah. Oh, cool. They're so fun. Like, um, 
I definitely love noodles made out of things that are not noodles. (laughs) (laughs) Do you also have any sort of like, what's a major misconception people have about your cycle disorder? Oh, wow. I think there's a major misconception because a lot of us, there's no um, medical like aids or um, like visibility to our disorder that people believe that it is not serious or life-threatening. Our disorder comes on like uh, if it's going to go bad, um, it happens very quickly and can go from me sitting here like this talking to you now uh, to needing being in a coma within, you know, 24 hours. Wow. Um, and there's just nothing to, to see with most of the patients uh, that, mm-hmm. that they are um, disabled in that way. Yeah, that, yeah, that makes sense. It, it is, that's something that I've talked about with various people about like sort of just wanting a signal that um, like an external signal because with some things there is something where like you can see with someone immediately that they have something that both serves the purpose of uh, you know whether it's a mobility aid or like you know like other forms of assistance it like serves a dual purpose both its stated purpose but also just sort of like letting people know like there is something to actually look out for and to be mindful of. I think that's a big one. Yeah. So I, I think because of that, we get um, oftentimes where, you know, you're, you're not believed, you're kind of, especially, you know, for me as a, a woman, I get told, you know, just, it's, it's fine. You're fine. You know, there's yeah. a, or is anything ever really wrong with you or like, you're just sick, you know? And I'm like, uh-huh. <sighs> is that mainly from like friends or coworkers or is that also uh, with like doctors and stuff? Uh, you know, now it doesn't happen in my life anymore because, like I said, I've really taken confidence in, you know, owning this disorder. This is my life. Take it or leave it. So anybody who's in my life uh, knows about it. I kind of call it my urea cycle disorder filter. Like, mm-hmm. if I tell you that I have urea cycle disorder, that it's a big deal, and you don't take it seriously, then I'm not going to take you seriously. No, I think that's a good policy because if you don't want to have to be fighting that battle with someone all the time. To, to like have just sort of a like basic and important part of you acknowledged. What did taking ownership of it look like for you? I know you got um you start connecting more with people and reaching out. Yes, it it, uh, it definitely came in that form. It also came uh, with me really accepting everything about it, like that this was mine, that it wasn't going anywhere, and that it needed treatment. The treatment was in my control and that I could do the things that I needed to do, but I just needed to start doing them. So I guess almost just accepting and like walking the walk, you know, taking Mm -hmm. your medicine, you know, doing what the doctors uh, advise you to do and to not do, even if that means giving up things that you like or you Mm -hmm. want to do. Um, So I think that what that looks like is probably a little bit of sacrifice Mm -hmm. and reflection. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, you know, like I said, at the end, you, you gain so much, you know, strength and independence and peace really from just being like, this is, this is who I am. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that goes for so many different things. Like, um, with so many rare diseases or even common diseases, sort of like being like, okay, this is the set of circumstances I've been given and I can choose what to do with them. Like, I think that's just sort of an important view to accepting so much of what comes to us in life. Another question I had was how has, you know, the era we are currently in with coronavirus impacted things for the UCD community? Um, I know something I was thinking about was obtaining food has changed for everybody. Like 
when you're able to go to the grocery store and what's available and stuff. And I was thinking recently, like, it must be really hard if there's only a specific group of food that you can eat. Um, I think what we're finding more challenging to get is um, our medicine, yeah. the medical food, mm -hmm. um, and also some of the, like, financial assistance that we get. I know some of our families um, who were dealing with this very, you know, the, the diagnosis ha has a financial burden. And some of the families, you know, they were two, fa two income families and maybe one uh, family member has been furloughed, you know, mm -hmm. that, that takes it. And uh, so I, I think that's really where we're struggling the most. It's not necessarily food because, yeah. uh, in my opinion, uh, the secret is that not a lot of people eat their um, low protein food, like their fruits and vegetables. Uh -huh. So we've been lucky enough yeah. to not <laughs> about that. I mean, I speak for myself though. Uh, I don't want to speak for the whole community, but I, I do know that, uh, several members in the community have struggled with getting their medical food and their medicine. Um, but we also work with some great nonprofits who have come through and, you know, made sure that we have too much, yeah. uh, so get us through. And, and, you know, like I said, this is a great community. So you see a lot of conversation on the social media about you know helping each other out like hey do you have a box of this can you send me that mm -hmm. oh that's really nice that's such a good community thing to seek you know it's sort of a time of crisis where sort of the structures that we've built sort of a reciprocal community are really sort of coming through when they need to be like you're sort of seeing benefits of all of the work that people have put towards building these communities hey right. yes and you know michael and robin from CFUCDF, they uh, did a great job of building that community, and there's there's a there's like a closed Facebook group that they have. Um, that it, it's so just great to see everybody like leaning on each other in these times, reaching out to each other, talking to each other, sending each other pictures. Um, and I I love getting on that forum every day mm -hmm. and talking to all my friends. And so mm -hmm. I, without that in coronavirus time, I think we would all be uh, yeah. for naught. Yeah. There is this sort of, I feel like this strange um, in coronavirus time and just sort of in the rare disease community broadly, it almost sort of feels, I mean, I think rare disease, people in the rare disease community are really feeling the effects of coronavirus and I don't want to downplay that, um, like just financially and in terms of finding medication and in terms of like being able to go in and get medical treatment. But then there's also this other side where I feel like the rare disease community is really set up and prepared for it because there's all of these things like already having a strong online community that you built to deal with a, like a different diagnosis or already having worked on sort of like the emotional side of learning how to accept sort of something that's difficult and wasn't exactly what you imagined for your life. Yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> like, like, there are all these, something I was saying recently was it's like, it almost sort of feels like coronavirus is this mini sampler of what it's like to have a chronic illness. Um, like, it'll be over in a few months, and in a lot of ways, it's not at all like it, because like, you aren't actually, I mean, unless you get coronavirus, then you are sick. But um, if you're just like quarantining at home, it's sort of like you suddenly have to adjust to your life being nothing like it was before and um, sort of having to deal with all this uncertainty and um, all this stuff that's just so out of your control, except it's just for however long it's for, um, which is a mystery to me. <laughs> 
Right. Somebody on uh, one of the social media platforms sent me this joke where it was like, I didn't know that my lifestyle was called quarantine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I just thought that was so funny because, uh, you know, it's true. You have to, with a rare disorder and being immunocompromised, you know, you end up canceling on a lot of things and not going out, becoming mm -hmm. a homebody and getting different hobbies. And I, I didn't know my lifestyle was called quarantine. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, no, there's like, there's definitely this feeling of it, of like the whole world taking on, like, and now I'm sort of like, okay, people in the rare disease community are the experts at this. Like, um, <laughs> and just sort of like knowing what resources to turn to or like how to occupy time at home or just even like how to like live with not exactly knowing how it's going to play out. The unknown of it all. Yeah, exactly. Which I think is like one of the many things that's very difficult about this era. Um, all right. I will let you go soon. But um, my last two questions are, where can people find your work or the work of your organization? Um, or both. <laughs> um, and um, what words would you want to leave any listeners with? So they can find my work at uh, on Instagram at mm -hmm. lindsaybro.com and also on www.ucdfamily.org mm -hmm. in the blog area. And I, if I had one thing to say, I would say just, just be yourself, you know, mm -hmm. accept all the bad, all the good, and just totally live your life for who you are, do everything as truly authentic as you can, as cheesy as that sounds. No, I think, I think that's good advice. I think that's something that, I think that's something we all need to get reminded of, um, be reminded of. I don't know why I can't form sentences properly today, but yeah. It's Monday. Yeah, exactly. I, I really do suffer with Mondays. I know like that's like the joke that like people always like refer to like how everyone says that, but I, I really do. <laughs> <laughs> all right thank you um thanks for thanks for calling i'm glad we got to speak with you i'm happy to be here hi this is alana and this is wait how do you spell that a rare disease podcast produced by patient worthy